Well, here we are at the end of our B-I-B-L-E series. I hope you've enjoyed the series. Have you enjoyed the Bible series? Uh, thanks. Yeah. I don't know what else you're supposed to do. I don't know. We got to clap. He asked. I don't know. Um, I sure have. It's been a ton, a ton, a ton of fun. And uh, today on this sweltering Canada Day, is it not hot outside? Good gravy. Like, that's impossible heat. That's, that's worse than Phoenix. That's bad. This is bad, 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 bad. And today on this sweltering Canada Day, we're finishing our series uh, with a game of 20 questions. But before we do that, we're going to say this verse just a couple of times just to make sure it's solid in our minds. So look up here on the screen. All scripture, say it with me, is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and for training in righteousness so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. One more time. All scripture is and is and for training in righteousness so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. Some of you are trying to sprint through that. You don't need to sprint through that. Okay, just take your time. Just take your time. Ready? One more time. All scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and for training in righteousness so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. We've done all kinds of things over the course of the series. We've asked the question, what is the Bible? We've asked, can I trust the Bible? We've asked, uh, how did the Bible come to be? How do I read and study the Bible? And throughout this entire series, we've actually been accepting questions online through Instagram and Facebook, via email, via personal text messages and phone calls. And so today, here's what we're gonna do. We're just gonna play a game of 20 questions. Do you remember playing 20 questions when you were a kid? On car trips, this is what we did on car rides, my family. You had to think of a famous person, right, or somebody in your mind, and everybody in the car got 20 questions. Is your person male or female? Are they an actor or a sports star? Mine was always Jimmy Buffett, so like the first question was, is it Jimmy Buffett? I said, yes, again, you got it. You know, it was always Jimmy Buffett, so I always lost. But today we're playing 20 questions, and here's the deal. Over the course of the next 40 minutes or so, we're going to ask and answer as many questions as we possibly can. Some of them we won't be able to get to. Some of them we've kind of consolidated uh, but we're going to try to answer as many questions as we can that came in over the course of the series. But before we do that, I wanted to encourage you just with a couple of things when it comes to asking your own questions of the scripture and seeking answers from the scripture because the point of this series was never to give you all the Bible answers that you always wanted so that you would walk away and go, oh gosh, thank you. Uh, my pastor who is an expert and a professional, he's a vocational minister, he gave me the answer to this question. That's not the point. The point is that you would love your Bible, remember? The point is that you would read it and study it and, and seek to understand it and sit under, under the authority of it. And so when you ask questions of the scripture, don't necessarily bring them to me or to Kevin or Dave or whomever. Uh, seek them out on your own. Read and study on your own. And as you do that, here are just four quick tips as you ask and seek answers uh, for your questions. The first is be honest. Be honest. I love that the Bible gives us the freedom to be really honest with God, don't you? I mean, I don't know if you've read the Psalms or Habakkuk or Job, 
There are some honest questions in there, phrased with really, really honest language. Things like, oh God, why are you doing this to me? (laughs) Oh God, why do the wicked prosper while the righteous are dying in vain? Oh God, how long will you be silent? And there is certainly a tone in those questions of frustration, anger, confusion. There are very, very honest questions in the scripture. And guess what? God's strong enough to take it. Maybe for some of you today, this is the only thing that you needed to hear today. The only thing that you needed to hear was that you can bring your honest questions to God and not be afraid. We're not trying to trap God. There's some questions in the scripture that are silly questions like, did God really say not to eat of that tree? Or the Pharisees trying to trap Jesus with their questions. But those honest gut level, deep down in your soul, you wouldn't utter them to anyone else except for God himself type of questions. God loves those. He loves honest questions. Second is, as you seek your answers, be persistent. Be persistent. Uh, I, I, I really do. I love just to quit stuff. Do you love to quit stuff? You know those signs? You ever go to the gym, there's this little sign on the treadmill that says, uh, if you experience shortness of breath or dizziness or pain, get off the treadmill immediately, right? I'm like, I was pretty sure that was the point, you know, when you get on a treadmill. Shortness of breath and pain. That's what you're supposed to be experiencing on the treadmill. And the minute I experience a little bit of shortness of breath, I'm like, that's it, I'm going home. I'm going to have a donut. So same thing goes with your questions in the scripture. Sometimes we ask a question in the scripture. If we don't get an answer right away, we give up. We throw our hands in the air and say, oh, there's not an answer. But watch. Watch what Paul says about this group of people called the Bereans. Or Luke writes this about the Bereans. He says, these Jews were more noble than those in Thessalonica. Why? Because they received the word, the Bible, with all eagerness. And what did they do? They examined the scripture, say this word with me, daily to see if these things were so. See, Paul and Silas had taught them about the gospel and about Jesus and about God's good news. And they sought the scriptures daily, examined them daily. So when you ask and seek answers for your questions, be persistent. Be persistent. Be like a Berean and keep going over time. And God will begin to reveal these things to you. The third thing I would tell you is to be open. Be open. A lot of times we come with a preconceived notion of what the answer to our question might be. We even come with a preconceived notion, check this out, that there is an answer at all. Or a preconceived notion that if there is an answer, we deserve for God to reveal it to us. Let me say that one more time. Sometimes we ask questions of the scripture, we ask questions of God. We come with a preconceived notion that God is under obligation to reveal to us the answer. And I would just encourage you to be open to times when God goes, you know what? Not to be rude. That's for me to know and you to find out. <laughs> right? This, that's, that's, that's not up to you. Even Jesus at times said, look, even the son does not know the time or the hour. That's up to just the father. I love this verse in Deuteronomy 29, 29. So there's no really obscure verse in the Bible, but it's a seldom quoted verse. Look what uh, the author of Deuteronomy says. He says, the secret things belong to the Lord our God. But the things that are revealed belong to us and our children forever, that we may do all the words of this law. <laughs> this is an unfortunate verse, you understand, right? <laughs> like, God has revealed some things about himself and about his expectations, 
And we are accountable to those things. We failed to meet those expectations, and I'm so grateful for Jesus who did. And those things we're held accountable for, but there are some secret things that belong to him. This is essentially what Mark Twain said. He said, it's not the parts of the Bible I don't understand that trouble me. It's the parts of the Bible I do understand that trouble me. You know, we, we, we think that we're owed an answer. And God says, you know what? I've revealed some things to you. Work on those things. And over time, over time, we may get answers to other things. But in the meantime, be open. Be open to the fact that the answer might not be what you expect or you may not get an answer at all. Finally, be patient. Be patient. Um, I, I'm not going to give you a scripture reference for this one, but for me personally, I will just tell you, uh, as I've gotten older, and I'm not old, but as I've gotten older, uh, it's become easier for me to hold in tension some of these things that I, I just don't know about God. Or I just don't know about the Bible. You know, I got a guess on some stuff. There's some things I know for sure. Those things that God has revealed in his word. Those things I know for sure. Those things I'm accountable for. But you know what? Some things I don't. I was listening to uh, an interview with Eugene Peterson today. Eugene Peterson wrote or translated the message. Some of you enjoy reading the message as much as I do. Some of Eugene Peterson's devotional material. He said the same thing, that over time he's, uh, he's acquired more and more questions about God than he has answers about God. And he's learned to trust God even more in the midst of it. So be patient with God for whom a day is like a thousand years, unfortunately. <laughs> So here's the last thing I want to tell you before we get into our questions is this. Um, I said we're going to play a game of 20 questions. I've got 15 ready to go. That means you're responsible for five. And during the message, I would love it if you would text this number right here up on the screen. You can text your questions today, and Pastor Kevin and I will attempt to answer. Look at everybody's fishing for their phone. Oh, my gosh, this is crazy. Why is Dave Lewis so ridiculously good looking? Uh, don't text that one. Don't text that one in. All right, so I got 15 questions, and in the midst of it, uh, I text these questions. Pastor Kevin is back there on his Google Voice number. Uh, he's, he's fielding those questions, going to consolidate them, assimilate them, and at the end of the message, we're going to do our best to answer even the live questions that come in. Now, here's the thing. This could go completely bad, couldn't it? But hey, it's Canada Day. We're going to have a great afternoon. And if you want to get out of here early, don't submit any questions. We'll just stop at 15. See? Okay. Here we go. Uh, oh, throughout the message too, by the way, throughout the message, this number is going to be up on the screen so you can send in your questions at any point. All right, question number one. Uh, what language was the Bible written in? Well, this is an easy one. Good. Thank you. Let's start with an easy one. What language was the Bible written in? Old Testament was written in Hebrew. New Testament was written in Greek. There are small portions, very small portions of the Bible that are written in Aramaic. Uh, a small portion of Daniel. Uh, when Jesus says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me on the cross? He says that in Aramaic, and so it's written in Aramaic. It was kind of a language of the people. But by and large, Hebrew, the Old Testament, Greek, the New Testament. Very, very easy ones. Keep the easy ones coming. Uh, is Genesis 1 through 3, next question, uh, it's meant to be taken literally or figuratively? Okay, good, more easy ones, perfect. Um, 
For those of you who don't know this, Genesis 1 through 3 is the creation account, the account of God creating the world, creating man, speaking man into existence, giving man charge as his vice regent over things, then humankind rebelling against God, walking away from him and saying no to his perfect creation. And when we ask this question, we superimpose a very modern mindset over the top of a text of antiquity. We say, is this meant to be taken literally or figuratively? Do you see the false bifurcation we just created there? It's either literal or figurative, one of the two. And people of antiquity, those who would have written Genesis, wouldn't have even necessarily had these categories in their mind, literal or figurative. In fact, texts of antiquity, there would be a historical text wrapped up with analogy, wrapped up with metaphor, literal things wrapped up with phys- uh, figurative things and metaphorical things so as to help us understand a big picture something. And so when we ask this question of the scripture, uh, if we even ask the, the author of Genesis, Moses, okay, what did you mean? Was it literal or was it figurative? Moses would go, I don't, I don't even know what those words mean. I don't even have categories for those things. And so the answer to this question is Genesis one through three meant to be taken literally or figuratively is um, both and neither and all of those together. That's the answer to that question. Does that excite you? It does, doesn't it? All right, next question. Would God ever deceive us for our good? This is a question that we actually got uh, throughout the week here. Would God ever deceive us for our good? Well, first thing I would tell you is God would never deceive us because it's impossible for God to lie. It's one of the questions or one of the things that we talked about early on in this series. It's impossible for God to lie. But it's also a logical impossibility. So stick with me here. Walk with me in in terms of the logic. If we believe that God is all-powerful, which we do, and we believe that he is all-good, which we do, he doesn't have to lie in order to seek our good. Does that make sense? He would be under no no obligation. He would not need to deceive us. He may withhold information for us, but he would not need to deceive us in order to promote our good, in order to fulfill his promise of having good things in store for us. Now, there are some times when I have good things in store for my kid and I feel the need to lie to her, okay? I want to go to Disneyland. You can't go to Disneyland. Why? Disneyland burnt down. I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. Well, Dad, why did Disneyland burn down? Probably because of something you did. Sometimes we feel the need, and it's like, I I have good things in store for my kid. You know, we're going to go to Disneyland in a few days, which we're not, but let's say we're going to go to Disneyland in a few days, and I've got that in mind for her, and I, I say, it's not time for that yet. See, I might feel the need to lie to her for her good, but because God is all powerful, he, he, he would never have the need to do that, aside from the fact he would promise never to do that as well. Next question. Uh, can a Christian lose his or her salvation? No. Next question. Um, do animals go to heaven? Can we go back to that other one? Do you want me to answer this one further? Can Christian lose his or her salvation? You want me to answer? Oh, mm-hmm. Um, here's, here's why. Here's why. Because your salvation is not dependent on you how you got it, or whether or not you might lose it. Well, who's it it got to do with? It's got to do with Jesus. And Jesus promises this, the Father has entrusted sheep to me, and I will not lose any of them, is what he says. Like, if there's something you can do to lose your salvation, there's quite certainly something you can do to earn it, right? Because it's not dependent on you. 
And, and there, there might be a follow-up question. It's like, so if I can't lose my salvation, then I can just go haywire, right? And just, I'm forgiven, and I just go bananas and like Hunter S. Thompson this life for the rest of the, and the you know, eat and drink for tomorrow we die. And Paul would argue, should we go on sinning so that grace would increase? By no means. We've been set free from sin. How can we walk in it any longer? But the short answer is that a Christian cannot lose his or her salvation. The $2 theological term coming from kind of a reform background is the perseverance of the saints. That is to say that God will complete the work he started in you, which is his saving and electing grace. Next question. Uh, do animals go to heaven? Yes. Uh, not cats, but the, but the rest of them do. You know, I, do, I love cats. They taste like chicken. <laughs> Just super in a burrito, David. Super good in a burrito. Um, so, so a kind of a coupling question with this, I'm going to answer this one seriously. Uh, a coupling question with this, with this would be, do animals have a soul? The answer is no, not in the same way that mankind would have a soul. In the end of Genesis 1, when God says he breathed the breath of life into mankind, he made mankind unique from the animals, gave us something different, set us aside, made us unique. However, so, so there's not this kind of... Um, an animal would go be with God because an animal has a soul and God's saving grace might be on that animal. But we talk about this all the time. God's purpose in the world is to make all things new, right? We, we talk about restoration and redemption and God restoring all things to that perfect creation that he started with. And we talk about this all the time. Everybody nod your head. We, 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 you get that? Okay. Were animals there pre-sin? Yeah. Yeah. So when God makes all things new, it is my opinion, my kind of from my theological framework, that animals would be there in the new heaven and the new earth. Except for my one caveat, cats. Um, creep, don't you find cats creepy? You know those hairless cats? Man, oh man, those are creepy little dudes, man. That's a, that's a weird deal. If you've got a hairless cat, boy... Try people's church, man. This is. <laughs> All right, next question. Where are we at here? Uh, what is speaking in tongues? What is speaking in tongues? Okay, so this is a, um, this is a phrase that uh, Christians use, that the church uses, that refers to one of two phenomena. The first showed up in Acts chapter 2. What happens in Acts chapter 2 is during Pentecost, all the disciples are, are are together in one place, they're together in a room because they're frightened because their leader just got killed and they're pretty sure that folks are gonna come after them too. And they were right. So they're scared, they're tucked in a room and there's all these people from all over the place, fears of God that came to Jerusalem to celebrate and they all speak different languages. Well, all of a sudden, the Holy Spirit shows up in the room. It's the first time the Holy Spirit shows up. And they say it was, as, as, it was as if there were tongues of fire in the room. And the Holy Spirit empowered those individuals to speak a known language for the sake of the gospel. And when people use this phrase, speaking in tongues, it, it sounds a little like uh, kind of ethereal. It sounds a little... Um, 
you know, spiritually thing. In Acts chapter 2 was, they were empowered to speak a known language. So it would be as if I was in Iran. I don't speak a word of Farsi. But if I was in Iran, and somebody really needed to know the gospel, and God really wanted that to happen, and I was the only one there that knew Jesus, God could empower me to speak Farsi so that Jesus would be made famous in that place. Now, that's never happened to me. Do I think it still happens? 100%. 100%. Do I think it happens in Canada? Not that often. Because there wouldn't necessarily be a need for it, you understand. Right? There wouldn't necessarily be a need for it. Because most people speak English, and if they don't, somebody goes, look, I don't speak English, I only speak Mandarin. There's a translator. I, you know what? I'll just tell you this quick story. There was one time when I was preaching here, uh, and there was a woman sitting right here down the front, woman, probably 70, and a, a girl with her who I found out was her daughter afterwards. And they're talking the entire sermon. Like straight up, talk, I could hear them talking. And they weren't speaking a language that I understood. They weren't speaking English, and that's the only one I understand. But, but they're talking the entire sermon. And I'm getting ticked, you know? Like, look. It's just 40 minutes. It's my time. Like, don't talk. Don't talk. This is rude. So they come up to me afterwards, and this young girl in, uh, introduces me to her mother, who had never been to church before. She only speaks Portuguese because she's from Brazil. She translated the entire sermon to her, and she gave her life to Jesus that day. And I thought, man, I'm stupid. Uh, that's... That is not a good attitude. See, God uses those kinds of things, but he wouldn't necessarily use speaking in tongues, at least in this context, because we have situations like that. The other type of speaking in tongues that people refer to is this prayer language. Um, so it would be an unknown language only that God can discern and decipher. You may have seen this on videos. You may have experienced this in church backgrounds you've been in before. Do I think that's a real thing? Yes, I think that's a real thing. Have I ever done it? No. Uh, but I think the Bible has not, I think, I, I'm 100%, the Bible has some very clear guidelines and regulations for how that happens in corporate worship and even in your private worship. And so if you're a person that says, you know what, I do this speaking in tongue thing or I, I've, I've maybe experienced this in other places, listen very, very closely. I would exhort you, encourage you, beg you, to make sure that when you hear that kind of speaking in tongues type of thing that's the prayer language, that it aligns with the guidelines of Scripture. Because the Scripture is our final authority, not how we feel. With me? That's speaking in tongues. Let's go. Next. Uh, why do bad things happen to good people? Um, I want to say two things about this. One. Do you remember the trajectory of God's redemptive plan that we've talked about a couple of times in here? The setting, the conflict when man rebelled from God, the rising action, the climax when Jesus shows up on the scene and inaugurates the kingdom and begins to resolve all these conflicts and begins to put into motion a plan for redemption and restoration of all things. And now we're involved in the falling action, but we're not at the resolution just yet. So bad things happen I'll save the good people part here for a minute. Bad things happen because the world is broken. The world's busted up. And that might not be a satisfactory answer for you, but it's a satisfactory answer for me. 
It's a satisfactory answer for me when I have to walk out of a hospital room and leave a baby that I thought I was going to have, that I was going to adopt twice. (laughs) It's a satisfactory answer for me when people get sick in my life. It's a satisfactory answer for me when things are rough, when, when people make foolish choices in marriages, when children go wayward, when your finances are busted, when you get laid off. The world is broken. Sin has a hold. God has inaugurated a plan to fix it, but the plan's not complete yet. The plan's not complete yet. That's the first thing I would say. Second thing I would say is why is it when we ask questions like this, we bias them towards ourselves? Why do bad things happen to good people? Really? That's you? And it's always this, right? Like, look, I'm no Mother Teresa, but I'm no Hitler either, right? As if that's the expectation, right? Oh, this genocidal maniac who tried to obliterate God's people from the face of the planet. You're better than him. Oh, good. I don't know why you got a parking ticket today. That just seems, you know, weird that you would be better than Hitler and you got a parking ticket. Right? So nobody ever asked this question. Watch. Nobody ever asked this. Why do good things happen to bad people? And, 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 we, and we, we don't see ourselves from that perspective. We're always the good people that bad things are happening to. And someone else is always the bad person that good things are happening to. So I would encourage you to look inside of your own heart and say, maybe, maybe I'm a little more this than I thought. Maybe I've got a little more sin, a little more bustedness, a little more brokenness inside of me than I thought. Uh, keep going. What does the Bible say about the Trinity? Short answer is nothing. The Bible doesn't use this word. Uh, this is a, a word that... Don't, I believe in the Trinity. The Bible teaches the Trinity. Don't panic. People are going to fire me. It's going to be great. Um, the Trinity is a word that the Bible uses for uh, this three-person, or the word the Bible doesn't use, but a word that theologians use to refer to a biblical concept. The biblical concept is that we believe in one God, monotheistic, eternally existent in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So you see the Trinit- Trinitarian activity. You see the Trinity show up, even working together, working in concert with one another in different places in the Bible. So when God says, let us make man in our own image, that plural word refers to the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. When Jesus is baptized, you see Jesus being baptized. You see the Father speaking, this is my beloved Son in whom I'm well pleased. And you see the Holy Spirit descending on him like a dove. See all persons of the Godhead working together in concert. And then this word Trinity, when people say that, that's what they're referring to, is the three-person Godhead, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Keep going. This one came in this week. What's up with Matthew 2, 14 and 15 and Hosea 11, 1? For those of you, I mean, I know you have those verses memorized, so I won't read them to you. Um, that's not true. Matthew 2, 14 through 15 says this. And he rose, this is Joseph, and took the child, that's Jesus, and his mother by night and departed to where? 
Egypt and remain there until the death of Herod. See, this is when Herod was trying to kill all the Hebrew children under two in all of the province. So this was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet, out of Egypt I called my son. So long ago, God had spoken through a prophet that he would call his son out of Egypt. So what Matthew is saying is that when Jesus and his family fled to Egypt, uh, this is to fulfill what the prophet said. So when Jesus returns, he's going to return from Egypt. And he's referring to Hosea 11.1. But watch what Hosea 11.1 says. Hosea 11.1 says, when Israel was a child, I loved him. And out of Egypt, I called my son. Who is Hosea talking about here? Israel, right? Do you see the, do you see the question here? So is, is this prophecy about Jesus or is this prophecy about Israel? Is God calling Israel out of Egypt, which he did, or is God calling Jesus out of Egypt, which he did? There's a concept in scripture when it comes to prophecy called double fulfillment. Double fulfillment. We've got these places in scripture where we see Jesus coming on the scene and fulfilling the law, fulfilling uh, the role of Israel, even when Jesus says that he is the true vine, he's comparing and contrasting himself to Israel, who was the false vine. I could get into that at some other time if you want me to. Jesus fulfills uh, the sacrificial system, and in this particular case, there's a double fulfillment of prophecy where God has called Israel out of Egypt, sent Moses into Pharaoh, let my people go, and he's called Jesus out of Egypt to return to his hometown and begin his ministry. That's a question that came in this week. I hope that helps. Um, what role does the Holy Spirit play in, the, in reading the scripture? The Holy Spirit plays a big role in reading the scripture. God's word says that no one can understand God and see the things of God unless, unless the Holy Spirit reveals it to him. I had a professor in university that had most of the New Testament memorized, and he would uh, say that he was an agnostic, that he wasn't sure if there was a God and wasn't sure that he cared. But because he was an academian, because he had a PhD, and because he taught uh, the history of Christianity and biblical interpretation and some other things. This is at Arizona State University, by the way. Um, he he uh, had most of the New Testament memorized. It's because there's no Holy Spirit activity there. So here, here's a, just a real quick application when it comes to the Holy Spirit's role in you reading the Scripture. When you read the Scripture, I would highly recommend that you start and stop with prayer. Oh God, open my eyes. Oh God, open my ears. This happens all over, especially Jesus. When he preaches to large crowds, he would say stuff like, he who has ears, let him hear. If, if you're listening for the things of God, God will reveal those things to you. And starting with the prayer, a prayer of submission, asking the Holy Spirit uh, to speak is a great way to start and end your time in the Word. Keep going. Should Christians fear science? No. Is that it? Is that good? Or you want me to keep going? Uh, one of my favorite theologians, a guy named Wayne Grudem, wrote this, and this is my favorite answer to this question. He said, we should never fear but always welcome any new facts that may be discovered in any legitimate area of human research or study. Because science is going to clarify scripture, science is going to affirm scripture, and the other way around. And Christians have got this weird thing where we kind of jettison science and we, we say, that we, you know, we kind of almost pit ourselves against science. And science is the same thing now, pits itself against faith. And those two things, uh, with people who are thinking people and intellectually honest people, work together in concert. So don't fear science, because science illuminates scripture for us, it's clarified 
amplifies scripture for us and uh, vice versa, scripture does the same thing. Keep going, how can we hear God's voice? How can we be sure that it's him? Uh, I will tell you a couple of things. One is God speaks primarily through his word and his word is always the trump card. If you think that you're hearing God's voice and God is really telling you to move in with this person who's not your spouse before you're married, that's not God. Okay, If you think you're hearing God's voice to tell you to cut corners in your business, that's not God. I've had people tell me this all the time. Like People tell me this all the time. We just feel that God is really leading. No, he's not. So scripture is the trump card. We are sure that God has spoken through scripture, and I hope that you've learned that over the course of the series. But God can begin to speak in other ways. God can speak through others. Has anybody ever happened to you, especially your spouse, close friends, pastors, leaders, mentors, people that say, hey, I see this in you, and it doesn't look good. (laughs) Or I see this in you, and I see Jesus in that. And God can speak in that. Or if you're facing a decision, I could could do this, or I could do this. People who know you well, Christians who love God and want to see Jesus uh, birthed in you and and, um, see Jesus developing in you, could say to you, hey, choose this path, not this path. Uh, God also speaks through his Holy Spirit. It's kind of this inside kind of conscience voice that speaks to us. And so one thing I would tell you when it comes to the certainty of God's voice, and I said this in a message uh, a little while ago, is that hearing God's voice is like hearing a chord on a piano. Hearing God's voice is like hearing a chord on a piano. If I was to strike one note on a piano, that's not a chord, right? But if I was to strike a C and an E, now we're maybe getting somewhere. And if I was to strike a C, an E, and a G all together, one, two, three, boom, who knows what chord that is? It's a C major chord. It's a C major chord. So in the same way as we hear God's voice, uh, we may have this kind of internal Holy Spirit something that's leading us in a certain direction. And that's just one note, and sometimes one note is enough. But then if someone else in our life that we trust speaks into that, and, and, and it's the same thing, we hear the same thing, and then we read in Scripture, and Scripture begins to compel us, now we're starting to hear more notes in that chord, so to speak. Do you understand? And the more notes we hear, the more full-orbed we hear of God's voice. Let's keep going. Why is Dave Lewis so ridiculously good-looking? Okay, good. Good. Okay, first of all, that's not a Bible question. Second is the secret things belong to God. I mean, you, just, you never know. You never know. Uh, next question, who was Cain's wife? Um, Adam and Eve, first man and first woman, had two children, Cain and Abel. Cain killed Abel, and then uh, that from that line, the earth was populated. So did Cain marry his sister? some later uh, you know, child that Adam and Eve had? Did God create other men and women uh, from the ground and provide for Cain a wife? Uh, the short answer is, we don't know. We don't know. Cain's wife was Mrs. Cain. We don't, we don't know. We don't know. Bible doesn't, Bible doesn't say. Uh, next one, does God change from Old Testament to New Testament? Have you ever heard that before? That God is wrathful in the Old Testament, is angry, vengeful, and then in the New Testament, he's merciful. Okay, I would tell you a couple of things. One is, 
When we start to understand the character of God, we have to understand the full counsel of Scripture. We don't see God in one instance, in one moment, in one action, activity, or word. We see him over the course of the entire Scripture begin to reveal himself. And in the Old Testament, yes, he reveals his holiness. Yes, he reveals his hatred for sin. Yes, he reveals the consequences of that. But he also reveals his compassion, his grace, and mercy. When he first introduces himself to people in the Old Testament, He introduces himself this way. The Lord, the Lord is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. You see, we see that in the Old Testament. And then we fast forward to the New Testament. People are like, well, see, God is kind in the New Testament and gracious and he's tender towards people. You know, he still has wrath in the New Testament. You understand that, right? He's still angry with sin. It's just that he provided a perfect substitute to pour his wrath out onto. God doesn't change like shifting shadows. And, and this uh, kind of change that people think that they've maybe obser- observed over the course of Scripture has caused some liberal theologians to conclude what's called open theism. That is to say that God changes over time. And again, James would affirm that God does not change over time. Uh, the notion that uh, conservative theologians would, would affirm and the language that we would affirm is called progressive revelation. You get to know somebody, the whole of who they are, over a period of time. They don't reveal all of who they are to you in one instant. For example, when Amy and I very first started dating, she told me she loved Disneyland. And so I took her on a date to Disneyland. But I know more stuff about her now. So I don't always take her to Disneyland for every date we ever go on, right? Because progressively over time, she's revealed more and more of herself to me. One time we were at a spring training game. Amy asked for a hot dog. I went and got her a hot dog and asked for it Chicago style, which basically means they dump everything they possibly have onto the hot dog. I brought it to her, and Amy looked like, her face looked like I had just strangled her mother with my bare hands. I mean, she was like so offended that I brought her this hot dog. Now I know. Now I know. Don't bring Amy a hot dog with all this different stuff on it, all right? Take her to Disneyland. That's how to make Amy happy. In the same way, God reveals himself over time. He reveals his holiness and his grace, those two things that we hold in tension, and those two things that are perfectly represented at the cross of Christ. Live questions. Kevin, where are you at? Kevin, 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 Kevin. Did you get some? We got almost 30. Okay, good. Yeah. So that's two. And they were all different. Oh, good. All right, here we go. So uh, I chose the ones that were most relevant, I felt. Okay. You know, there were a lot of questions that came in. Thank you, everybody, for, for texting in. Um, there were a lot of very deep questions that we just didn't have enough time to unpack here, but there sure. were some that, that were, were really great. So we'll start with this one. Um, why do good things happen to bad people? Are you talking about me right now? Because I feel like this is a bad thing that's happening to me. Didn't I just say, didn't I just answer it? No, you answered why do bad things happen to good people. Oh, why do this good what, things happen yeah. to bad people? Yeah. All right. Um, there's this notion, notion in the scripture called common grace. That means that God is good and gracious to all that he created and uh, that... Um, Common grace as opposed to saving grace. Saving grace is what a Christian has experienced when God calls and regenerates the human spirit and and, uh, gives them salvation. But common grace is the things that all of us get to experience. All of us get to experience fresh rain, right? 
All of us get to experience the sun on our face. All of us get to experience the taste of food or family or friends. These are common things that God has been gracious because James says that he is the giver of every good and perfect gift. Not just the giver of salvation, which is a great gift. He's the giver of every good and perfect gift, and he allows all of his creation whom he loves to experience those things. Would you add anything to that? Yeah, I think... um good to bad people in particular, I think you have to ask yourself, how do you define what is good, right? Because we have to define good as God defines it, and that is an internal aspect. Eternal aspect. So does the good that you see, do they have, you know, are they making a lot of money? Are they, you know, having a great life? Mm. Is that ultimately God's good for them, right? right. right? So, right. yeah. Yeah, I, I've joked before, like, God reserves the right to define the word good. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. For, yeah. Yeah. All right. Keep going. We could we could talk about that forever. <laughs> okay. You guys could just sit here while we talk about yeah, this. Stuff. I like this Question. one a lot. All right. So because it actually has to do with I mean it's Bible Bible. Yeah. Uh, what are the main differences between the Protestant and Catholic Bibles? The Protestant and Catholic Bibles. Um, I think you'd be the best one to answer that question. <laughs> Go ahead. Okay. So Kevin's Kevin's got a lot of good stuff to say about this. <laughs> Um, the main difference is that the Catholic Bible has um, some extra books um, in their Old Testament. So I think the, the Hebrew Bible has 24 books and up to a certain... 27. 27? Yep. Okay. 27 books. Um, some of them is, you know, First and Second Kings are just one book. You know, um, Chronicles is just one book where we split up into two. Mm-hmm. Um, so it actually has 39 books if you look at it the same way as we do. Um, you know, once upon a time, the, um, some of the scholars would use what was called the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation uh, of the Bible. And in it, um, they had these extra books. Um, and so there are um, a number of Maccabees, Judith, to- Judith Tobit. Tobit. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so it's really in the Old Testament where, um, again, some of these scholars would, would quote these scriptures. And so the Catholics, um, they're called the deuterocanonical books, um, kept them in their Old Testament. Yeah. Uh, the New Testament is exactly the same. And so that's, that's basically it. Yeah. Uh, we talked about the canon of scripture, canonical meaning which books me- measure up. Deutero meaning second, so this is the second group of books that uh, Catholics have affirmed uh, measure up uh, to the standard of, of what we would say is inspired of God, and the Protestant, which, uh, Protestant uh, faith would just say that those are not, uh, they're, they're helpful, mm-hmm. uh, they've got history and things in them, but, but they would not be things that we include in our Bible, but those are the main differences between the Bibles. Last one. Great. Uh, one more? All right. Um... Let me pick a good one. What happens to people who have never had the opportunity to hear the gospel? You want to take a stab? <laughs> I mean, that's just that, that's yeah. just such a well. Okay, so so this is this is what allows me to sleep at night, I guess, so to speak. Um, we we know that you know. Um, salvation comes through Jesus Christ and, you know, uh, proclaiming his name, confessing that he is Lord. Um, if you have no, had no chance to hear that he is Lord, how do you confess his name? Um, we also know that God has revealed himself to be a God of grace, a God of love, a God of compassion, right? And so the, the honest answer to that question is, I don't know. The hopeful answer is, I hope that God's grace and compassion and loving and forbearance covers them in some way. Yeah, I, I would even... Uh, no, no, I wouldn't change anything about that. Hmm. 
That's, that's, a, that's a very, very good answer. Oh, man, I'm so glad you're here. <laughs> Say it with me one more time. All Scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. Let's pray together. God, thank you for your word. Thank you. Just as Kevin reminded us just now that you have revealed yourself to be a God who is good, gracious, compassionate, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love. And even when we ask questions of the Bible that we can't answer, at least in our minds, satisfactorily so, when we struggle with things, when we feel conflicted by things, we know, oh God, that we can trust your character, that we can trust your heart, that we can entrust ourselves to you as our perfect Father, our perfect heavenly father who loves creation who is making all things new who has good things in store for us and who is now empowering us to be the heralds of this good news of Jesus to tell all the world and give all the opportunity to respond in repentance and faith God teach us to be people of your word to read it love it study it live under the authority of it and enjoy you every day of our lives In the name of Christ, the people of God with enthusiasm said, amen. Hey, this is a great song to conclude our series, so let's stand and sing.